Welcome back to But Where Are You From? The podcast by Be Seen, where EC people can be loud, be heard, be seen. I'm your host, Mayan from Be Seen, and today we are talking about decolonizing green spaces. So here with me today are my wonderful guests, Holly, aka London Veg Patch, and Sue, aka the Temperate Gardener. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi, hello. Hello. I'm so happy to have you here. And as a gardening amateur in literally the loosest sense of the word, I'm really excited to talk to people who actually know what they're talking about. Oh, I think I might not be the right person to talk about this. Yeah, I, I never claim that I know what I'm talking about because I there's really no don't. imposter syndrome here. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to start by um, asking you both our signature question, which you can answer in any way that you like. We'll start with you, Holly. But where are you from? Do you know that that question immediately like makes me like go like I, I, for anyone who can't see, I'm like sort of shrugging my shoulders and like holding myself really tight because it's just like such a loaded question, isn't it? Every time you know that someone's you know that someone's going to ask that question, you know what they really mean. And like what I really want to say is, but what do you really mean? And obviously, what they really mean is you don't look like you're from around here. Um, yeah. often I just answer I'm like oh I'm, I'm from Cambridge and they're like oh okay and I'm like oh but actually I'm from this village near Cambridgeshire but no one ever really knows where it is so I tell I say Cambridge and then they kind of look a bit flummoxed and then they want to ask a bit more and I'm like oh but you want to know my heritage and they're like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and I'm like oh okay okay so blah blah blah, blah. Um, and then I would say that my grandparents are from Hong Kong but they emigrated here when I was young yeah, I like to draw it out as well in the most convoluted way possible. Yeah, well, I'm from Southeast London. My parents moved around quite a lot. I was born in Hong Kong. My sister was born in Paris, but neither of my parents are Chinese. No, 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 no. And then you can see they just sort of get more and more confused. And then just, it makes me really stubborn when I answer yeah. the question. Like, because I know but what they like, really mean is what kind of Asian are you? Yeah. Because the thing is, is like when you ask that question, it's like, you, well, you are asking my life story, aren't you? So I'm going to give that to you. Yeah, it's a very personal thing to, to ask someone you don't know. What about you, Sue? Yeah, I'm with Holly. I When I get asked it, I just normally say I'm from Lincolnshire. And then it's the whole, yeah, but where are you really from? And then it's like, yeah. well, this tiny village in Lincolnshire? I'm in London now, you know, back when I was in London. Um, and then they'd say, but where are your parents from? Um, so, yeah, and my initial response is always Lincolnshire and that I was born in England um, and that my mum is from Hong Kong and then my dad is from Malaysia, if they push. But, you know, again, it's that kind of intrusion that people feel they have the right to ask you that. And again, you know exactly why they're asking. And that's because they think you look like you shouldn't belong here or that you don't originally come from here. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever got this, but it, you've, spoke, you've only ever spoken to that person on the phone and then you meet them in person and they're like, oh, you don't look how you sound. And you're like, but how did you think I look? And then they're like, oh, I don't know. And then they, they sort of stuff up a little bit. Yeah. People get so defensive when you remotely question where they're coming from, don't they? Mm. So... My next question is, what do you do and why do you do it? And that's a very broad question, deliberately broad, but I'll start with you, Sue. Um, I'm a gardener, but I came into it as a career changer. So um, I studied business at university, being like a good little girl, you know, doing something practical and useful and that I know would kind of get me through life and uh, would be useful. And then I just really didn't like corporate life. Um, just wasn't for me I know some people love it but just wasn't my kind of thing um, and I did a bit of volunteering and then ended up going back to college to study horticulture um, yep yeah, so I describe myself as a gardener but if I'm honest I hate being pigeonholed I really hate people kind of trying to box me in and trying to define me because I always feel like just like with my taste in music or my taste in clothes or my taste in literally anything food I just love so many different things and I kind of feel very eclectic about lots of things. Um, yeah, and more recently people describe me as an activist, but I kind of don't feel like one. I reject that term because um, when you describe someone as an activist, it's like 
oh, they're doing that job. And then, you know, the, those people who are kind of call it or labeling people that kind of feel relieved of any responsibility to do anything or that, you know, that's not them. Um, and I kind of feel like speaking up and caring about equality and justice issues should be for everyone, not just for people that people want to label as activists. Um, so while I would say I've become more outspoken um, and um, kind of just, yeah, less willing to be quiet about things, um, yeah, people have started calling me an activist, but I don't see myself as that. That's really interesting that you that you feel that way, because I, I mm. we've talked about this on the podcast before, and I agree that it's a very murky water who gets to say what activism is, and it's often people who are quite removed from activist, in air quotes, spheres, who are the ones labelling, doing the labelling, and really activism or speaking up for social justice causes or important causes is something that everybody should be doing in their everyday lives all the time. So yeah, I totally, totally hear where you're coming from there. That's so um, true what about because... Oh, sorry. I was just going to say that's so true because I have never actually called myself an activist and I increasingly see myself labelled as that um, and, you know, kind of like written it written that that's what I am. And I have that has never come from my mouth. So, yeah, it absolutely is a label that other people have given to me. So what kind of activist do people try and peg you as? Um, I don't know if they peg me with any particular activism. I think it's just because I have been outspoken um, on justice and anti-racism issues within the world of horticulture. Um, so, yeah, I think, again, it's just like a labelling thing, isn't it? People feel like, mm. I guess, maybe they see me as stirring a little bit. I don't know. because I mean, often these conversations make people feel uncomfortable. And I think then that can lead people to calling people activists too. Um, yeah. Mm, it's interesting. What about you, Holly? What do you do and why do you do it? Um, so I guess you guys would have known me as an amateur gardener uh, on Instagram. And that's sort of what I'm focusing on at the moment. Like in, in real life, in air quotes, um, I'm training to be a stunt woman. And, um, what? Wait, what? <laughs> I'm training to be a stunt woman. Uh, so I've been doing that for a few years and I'm getting a bit old I'm 33 in terms of and in terms of like physically actually um, that has become quite taxing and so one of my um, hobbies has been to start more do more gardening and um, that's sort of what I'm focusing on at the moment um, and yeah that's basically what I do Oh my god! I, I can't believe I didn't know that. <laughs> what kind? What kind of like? I don't even know if this is a real question. What kind of stunt woman? Like, are there different types? Tell me more. Uh, no, so there's there's like one type of stunt person. So obviously, as a stunt person, so in the UK, you have to train um, and join a guild called the British Stunt Register. Um, and with in that training, you have to do six disciplines up to a certain standard, and then they say yes or no. Um, I'm still training, so I'm not a fully fledged stunt performer yet. Um, but I have worked on some films as a stunt performer because um, within the world of film, as in within any industry, there is a lack of uh, people of colour and especially women. So I've been lucky enough to work. Um, lots of people can specialise. They might be really good fighters, so they might get employed to be a fighter. Um, they might get employed to be a gymnast and do parkour, or they might get just a general dog's body to get hit by a car or something like that. But at the moment I've been just doing, um, I've done a couple of climbing gigs and a couple of Y gigs. Wow. My That's mind so is, cool. I'm so, yeah, it's so <laughs> cool. I'm so. I'm not sure how we're supposed to follow that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Maybe we should just end the podcast there. <laughs> um, I feel like those two things are so far apart from each other and when you said amateur gardener I mean for anyone who's listening if you've seen Holly's Instagram page looks like anything but amateur I mean I I'm an amateur gardener <laughs> you're definitely say, not an amateur Instagram gardening is very deceptive right because you choose to take a certain mm. segment of your life and you put it out there for other people to see and what you don't see is the tomato that looks like really squished and you know isn't great for photography or you don't see the mess behind the shed etc so yeah no I'm definitely still an amateur there are lots of people who are much better than me 
yeah people kind of like to document their successes don't they but then you know having said that in gardening there are always always going to be wrinkled shriveled things and kind of failing things and yeah that never changes (laughs) or stuff that yeah just things that you make a big song and dance about and then actually they turn out to be (laughs) really disappointing or really (laughs) shit (laughs) (laughs) so so you mentioned earlier that you've been quite outspoken about anti-racism in horticulture and in the garden and that's something that I did want to address today because well I'll start with the backlash that James Wong the botanist received when he dared to speak out about racism and colonialism or the fact that horticulture is kind of steeped in colonialism he dared to speak about that publicly to a white audience in honestly what I felt were really uncontroversial terms I mean the article that he wrote in the Guardian was actually not at all um it it wasn't particularly provocative and he just received so much backlash about it and so I want to unpack that a little bit because when we think about gardening again in air quotes the immediate assumptions that come to mind are that it's a very white middle-class hobby. And mm. yeah, I, I wanted to speak to you both about, about that because I'm sure that is something that feeds into your work. I kind of feel like um, it's just very easy for people to react quite quickly when they first come across these conversations. And it, you know, James is quite often um, vocal about it and he quite often talks about these things on his um, Twitter timeline. He's very active on Twitter. Um, but obviously, I mean, Twitter's a funny place, isn't it? It's got mm. all sorts of people and anyone can kind of jump in and uh, react and say whatever they want very instantly without thinking. Um, and I guess you're always going to come across lots of people who haven't engaged with these conversations a- in any way previously. So just the words colonialism or colonial can completely get people's backs up um, and just provokes a reaction that sort of, I mean, it's fear, basically. Uh, People feel attacked. And when they hear words like that, their initial reaction is to defend themselves aggressively. (laughs) So I think that's a large part of it. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think all credit to James for taking that kind of thing on continuously. Um, but yeah, mm. I think it's just, I guess, what some people would call fragility and what other people don't want to call fragility anymore. But yeah, it's that basically. So how do things like colonialism and racism manifest themselves in green spaces? So just as a, as a not, not someone who does it professionally, um, I had an experience recently where I went to RHS Wisley um, last summer and it was great, but I was the only non-white person there. And to walk into that space and experience that space was so overwhelming. Like I, I felt like I had to be really small to fit in. And so for me, that felt like, so I don't think that's anyone's fault. I just think at the moment, gardening is a very, very, very white space, um, especially in terms of visiting gardens um and I don't know what we can do about that I don't know if those places it's interesting right because when you go into some of these gardens the plants are from all over the world and so if you looked at every plant you'd be like okay they 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 represent species from all over the globe but when people go and see them it's mainly white middle class people who do go and see them now I don't know how we change that you know is that an issue of accessibility or is that an issue of not knowing that it's there I don't know I think it's, um, yeah, definitely. It's interesting that you feel like that, Holly. In Cambridge, did you grow up in a rural area or were you in an urban area? No, I grew up Mm. in a rural area and it was very reminiscent of me walking home from the train station from school and like Mm. people looking, despite the fact that they know who I am and I've lived there my entire Mm. life. Mm. It's so interesting that you feel like, you felt like that going to RHS Wisley because, um, I mean, I grew up in a rural area um, and obviously it was incredibly conservative and incredibly white in middle farming country where I was Um, and I think I've just sort of suppressed and internalized and assimilated myself so much that 
I sort of quite often bury those feelings or I'm not always sometimes you feel very uncomfortable but I think a lot of the time I kind of I'm not necessarily so switched onto it because I've just sort of um, put my blinkers on a bit as self-preservation and as a protection thing so I, I quite often go into those spaces thinking well I just deserve to be here and I should belong here so I just make myself think and feel that I mean there are other situations where I definitely think oh slightly uncomfortable um, but yeah you're so right I mean not seeing anyone who looks like you makes a big difference to how people feel not having your kind of voices heard and your stories told and you know like as we're talking about plant histories and everything it's like all of that kind of erases people and makes them feel like they're not part of that picture um I've actually got this quote here from Corinne Fowler I don't know if either of you have heard of her um she's written a book called Green Unpleasant Land and she is also she's an academic and she's a writer um and she um also was uh, involved in the National Trust report into their colonial and slavery links um, and she wrote recently, um, the barriers to land access today are emotional as well as financial. While white people have been taught that they belong in the countryside or that the countryside belongs to them, people of colour often experience outright racism and hostility alongside a sense of alienation from a mythical culture. Um, and when I read that, it was like, well, that's just hit all the nails on the head. It's, you know, we experience or we are at risk of experiencing racism because people just don't expect to see people like us out there or any people of colour um, and also because there is such a huge myth around the countryside in this country and gardening there's a massive myth in gardening too that it is all white and that it, it is the preserve of white people which just isn't true um, and as Corinne points out that historically that's not true either um, so yeah I think that is a lot to do with it why we feel Absolutely. like we're not accepted and why some people don't accept us absolutely so, uh, so one of the feelings that was compounded when I was with Lee was it was during the high middle of the pandemic when we were allowed out um I went to the loo and there was a sign outside that said one in one out but it was like a very unclear sign and I wasn't sure that there was anyone in there and I really needed the loo so I just went you know when you need to go you got to go uh I came out and I washed my hands and then this woman came out and she 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 shouted at me as if I didn't speak English and she was like, the sign says one in, one out. And I was like, oh gosh, I'm really sorry. And she was like a bit taken aback and then walked off. But it gave me a real sense that I was like, oh, like I actually don't belong here. That this person shouted at me because she felt like I didn't understand the language. It was a really very strange, intense feeling. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I was it's like a violation. Them, yeah. Yeah, it was like, oh, you feel like I don't belong here because I can't read that sign, but you've just made that assumption based on absolutely nothing at all. Um, and we're all trying to navigate a new situation here, right? During the pandemic, it's not like you know better than me what we have to do, but you felt the need that you could intrude into my space and tell me exactly how to behave in this space. Mm. Thanks yeah. for gatekeeping. Yeah. And it's not even necessarily just about gardens. I think it's about, yeah, all of those green rural spaces. Yeah. The point that you made, Sue, about the myth of the countryside is so true because if you think about things like political dispersal policies for resettlement of um, migrants for example or the fact that particularly Hong Kong Cantonese communities are so spread out in the UK because in part due to for example the restaurant and takeaway trade there are loads of people from different community backgrounds all over the country. Yes, they're a majority white, actually the whole of the UK is a majority white space, but it doesn't mean that those people aren't in these spaces. And we've spoken on the podcast about this before, about how you feel as a person of color in rural spaces. And, and that even that sort of alertness and that awareness that a potential, a, microaggression or a thing might happen or just even the discomfort that you feel almost like you're wearing a big suit that says look at me um, the big sign above your head that can even be slightly more even more stressful than a thing actually happening to you just that constant being switched on this especially with your with your friends or your family members or whoever it is um, who maybe do belong to those spaces I mean my my husband is Scottish, white Scottish, and his family from a really, really rural area. So when I'm with my in-laws and with him, 
they obviously move around these spaces as if they belong there. Yeah. And I have always felt like I don't belong. Um, and even just that sense of walking into a village pub or you're on yeah. a you're on a country walk, you know, you cross people and you say hello, and there's always a kind of, you know, look and people think, oh, what are you doing here? here? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Mm. And I think there's also this idea that, yeah, I mean, land access being a huge, huge issue and lots of pursuits being really quite inaccessible to a lot of people. Um, Mm. I'm thinking, for example, of things like forest schools, which are incredibly white dominated. and doesn't seem to be, at least to my knowledge, doesn't seem to be a focus for, um, you know, in terms of funding or movements to try and make those spaces more accessible. It's not really something that I have have seen. It still seems to be one of those reserves of the the white middle class and for white middle class Mm. children. Yeah, definitely. it's interesting what you say about kind of navigating the countryside and being in the countryside too, because, you know, back to the whole kind of where um, our parents kind of are busy working and everything, they don't necessarily have the time, first of all, they don't have the time to enjoy the countryside. But also, Mm. I think there is a barrier in literally understanding how you navigate the countryside so you know because our parents are busy working and they're not going out there and exploring and investigating and learning at the same time we are also not being taught you know how to kind of understand where we're allowed to go in the countryside and on the land and down the footpaths and all the rest of it and that can be quite a frightening forbidding thing um so yeah I think if you're never kind of literally taught how to navigate it then that's also a thing that stops you from doing it yeah, right, isn't there like a countryside code or something? Mm. It's like, you know, yeah, always you, close the gate behind know. you, blah, blah, yeah. blah. There is, a, there is like yeah. a, a guide or something. And like, if you, if you do a, if you do a pee, do it 10 metres from a stream or something like that. And we <laughs> you know, bury everything under leaves. Um, so that was, that's a really interesting point too, because I, um, before this podcast, I was having a chat with my, my partner who's white. Um, and we were saying, you know, what are the access problems in the UK? And he pointed out that often there are articles in the news about, oh, these silly tourists, they went up Snowden in plimsolls or trainers or whatever. And it's often like Asian tourists. So if you see that as a, as a person of colour, you're like, oh, if I go up this place and I do something wrong, that's going to get, that's going to make me look silly and also probably get blasted across the news. But you know, just in general, and what you were saying about parents not having the time to take parents out, to take kids out, that's, that's totally true. Like, I, I was never taught, you know, what do I wear when I go outside? Is plimsolls not okay? Because I did, plim- I did sports and plimsolls. So do I not wear those when I go and go on a long walk? No, you've got to wear hiking boots, you've got to wear technical gear and make sure that, you know, you're well supplied when you're out there so you know how to survive. And, you know, when you're busy trying to survive, in a you know mm. working you don't learn how to survive in air quotes in in the wild as it were all that stuff's quite expensive as well isn't it yeah yes. yeah I mean it's not even I mean a, a big part of it is about access and about um yeah it, it's about the costs of things but it is also completely it just it doesn't help to I guess generalize or homogenize in any way because I mean I I have a very privileged background you know middle class family grew up in in south London um you know had a a nice place to live decent education um I just don't know anything about green spaces and you know I didn't know anything about green spaces as a child because the kind of stuff that we did as a family was in the city um it's not it wasn't necessarily to do with access and things like that. You know, my family just had different interests. We just did different stuff. So I almost, I really resent being made to feel like I can't or I'm not welcome in certain spaces. You know, if you go and do something, a national trust site and people look at you and, and you feel a bit out of place. I'm like, well, what? Not that it should matter where you're from or, or what kind of background you have. Um, you know, anybody should feel welcome anywhere, but it's, um, I think there is uh, another myth about, oh, well, you know, 
it's wealthy white people who have access to this and all of those poor brown people don't have access um, and that's just the way that it is. Yeah I don't think I necessarily see that as 100% true either um, so I do a lot of outdoor climbing um, and mm-hmm. so with that and I, I climb with a mainly Asian crew so there's like like 10 of us so it, there are actually um, East and Southeast Asian people like like quite well, quite well represented within the climbing community in London, especially. Um, and we go out quite a lot. Um, and so when we when we when we go out, it, it feels quite nice because actually suddenly we're in a group of ten people and we're going outside to green spaces and really enjoying it. It's actually really only when you go out into towns and you you're going to the supermarket mm. to go and buy groceries to take back to your Airbnb, you're like, oh, we're actually it, we do we do feel quite different. So I do. Um, I think in general outside spaces can be quite freeing because you aren't around a lot of people it's when you then suddenly go into rural centers that it becomes a a slightly more self-conscious issue yeah that's so interesting Holly because I completely feel the same like what I was saying before about sort of internalizing and assimilating when I'm on my own I kind of feel like you know I can get away with it and it's fine but absolutely the more of us there are in numbers you know kind of looking different and um, being a, a group of people of colour, I definitely feel suddenly so much more vulnerable and conspicuous, actually. Um, and then I really do feel it. Um, I think because we're so used to kind of shrinking and blending into the background and hiding away. And I actually think that is one of the reasons we are also less likely to go out and explore because it's like you're putting yourself out there as a target more, you know, the kind mm. of more obvious and the more. Um, I don't know, loud and clear, you make yourself, it's like you're making yourself a bigger target. Um, and I think that can feel uncomfortable too. So yeah. And I think really one of the reasons for that is because like all these monikers, like the Asian invasion, yellow peril, all these kind of, all this kind of stuff that was, has been sold in kind of right-wing media for a really long time. It makes you really aware suddenly that when you're in a big group, that's how you could be perceived, right? Mm. Yeah, you suddenly become so much more conscious of it. Well, I actually have very little experience of moving in groups with other people of colour around the countryside. So I, like you said, so it's often it's just me or it's me with a bunch of other white people. So mm. you kind of just stick your head down and, yeah. and, you know, try to blend in. I mean, for me, it's always like village pubs are the ones that I just... Mm. There's nothing quite like walking into a pub full of old white men in the countryside mm. and there's a moment you know when you open the door and the door creaks open and everyone looks at you and you just think oh god I need to get over <laughs> to that corner as soon as possible yeah there's like a dual aspect of being a woman going into a pub as well yeah. as being a person of color going into a pub at the same time you're saying like oh I could there's, there's so much there's like so much danger in this situation or like potential danger in this situation yeah mm. definitely so I find it really sad as well that we obviously feel that because we are alert to that danger and we must be alert to it because we've had signals and we've had experience and, you know, there are things that tell us we should be alert. And, yeah, I kind of feel like that's really, that's like a type of violence and it's a type mm. of violation and it's not just in our heads. We haven't made that up. There's a reason we feel that way. So there's nothing worse than being told yeah but nothing's actually happened or Mm. nothing ever actually happens why are you so paranoid about it if you do choose to articulate your feelings you know um and it's coming back to this idea that it's just the it it even just can be the alertness that can really have an impact on your anxiety levels and and your well-being well it's because often the way that east and southeast asian people are represented in the media right just not not just in newspapers but in fiction and in music we, we, we all know what that is and we've all taken those kind of stereotypes in and when you walk into that space you're suddenly like are all these other people suddenly is this how they see me because this is their only ex- exposure to eastern Southeast Asian women yeah so yeah it feels it feels like a very very tense space I also tutor privately um for you know for families in London who are doing 11 pluses etc so I often get like I'm in West London quite a lot and there is a sense that when you walk in, it's different. It's different when you're a, a male tutor and perhaps a white male tutor walking into a household than a, a, a Chinese female tutor walking into that situation. I sort of, I suddenly felt very not myself 
Yes, um, it's very hard to explain it, isn't it? Unless yeah. you've kind of been in that situation and have felt how people are looking at you or must kind of treat, like, see you. It's very, it's, I don't know, it's just strange um, to see you as, like, some kind of help. Basically, mm. you really, really feel that you are not seen as an equal, like, so starkly. Um, yeah, it's just yeah kind this of idea of the help is really interesting yeah. um yeah and I know you hate labels Sue but I wonder if there's something <laughs> in the difference between how we say gardener and I don't know botanist you know because yeah or, or horticulturalist you know mm. what what is it that what is it that makes a gardener not a gardener anymore um yeah, and there's so I mean, much these, that we attach uh, to that word Absolutely. I mean, this kind of opens up a whole kind of conversation about, um, you know, standards and um, kind of certificates and learning and all that kind of stuff, which can be and which can come back to colonialism again. You know, this whole kind of need to say that some people are more qualified or more or superior than others. Um, I don't know if you've read um, Braiding Sweet Grass by... Uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer oh and she just yeah. mentioned that book <laughs> oh, and she talks and she talks about that kind of thing doesn't she about how um, she was talking to an indigenous woman and the level of her botanical and gardening and plant knowledge was just absolutely vast and rich and deep and but you know she had no qualifications she had no mm. formal piece of paper so, yeah, I think these things are just, again, to exclude certain people and to elevate certain people. Um, so, yeah, I, oh, it's so hard as a person with a degree and all the rest of it, two degrees um, and a postgrad. It's like, well, what do those things really mean? You know, they don't really necessarily mean anything. It definitely doesn't mean I know more than someone who's, uh, only one of those degrees is in horticulture but it doesn't mean I know more than someone who's all they've done is garden and not done any studying that's just completely like rubbish when you, um, you know in particularly in academic spheres and I guess this would go not just for gardens but I mean for any kind of heritage really you know this thing first discovered in 1863 by blah 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 it's like well really was it first discovered by mm. Harold whatever in 1863 or was it actually you know known to the people who are yeah. local to that area for yeah. centuries before that I find that yeah, really exactly. frustrating so frustrating I mean almost certainly um not discovered by that person <laughs> yeah it's just yeah. so the the kind of yeah all the erasure that there is in that in that kind of statement that so-and-so discovered this plant I mean what they mean is that they were the probably the first white western male to see it and perhaps label it and you know yeah. take it away from where they found yeah. it and bring it back and to where it. it was they came from <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and now yeah. we have them as house plants so yeah. yeah, and there's definitely right. this idea of, I think I've seen James Wong talk about this on his Twitter feed before, but this idea of, you know, um, in the horticultural world in the UK, pride in our native species and stuff. Mm. And, you know, when you're putting together displays and things, so let's make sure that we include loads of, of native flowers. And it's like, well, what are you really trying to say? Because, it, you know, it, the gardening world is diverse. And if you're saying, well, we only want flowers in this um, or, or plants in this exhibition that come from the UK, what message are you sending to the non-white populations in the UK who are no less British than the white mm. populations? And more often not, and they're not actually, those species were brought here by the Romans in like, you know, 2000, 2000 years ago or whatever. I don't actually, my history is really poor. Um, so for instance, like there's, like Alexander's, which are seen as a native plant here, but actually they're brought here to, by the Romans to, to be eaten. I, I think I might I might be wrong, so I might fact check me on that. But you know, a lot of these native plants that we are foraging, and eating, or growing in our gardens that we think are native are actually um, species from the Mediterranean. They've just naturalised as opposed to being native, and it's also like how far back do you have to go before something yeah. is yeah. native? I mean, that's such it's a similar with ethnicity as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, there's a, a Germanic tribe mm. yeah exactly um, 
I know James talks about this kind of thing. He brings it up a lot in his Twitter. Um, and also there's an organic grower, um, she's on Instagram called Claire Ratinon. And she quite often talks about the term native too and how it's particularly problematic when people often bring it up, or, uh, you know, the, something, a plant being non-native in relation to it being invasive. So it's like that negative kind of um, partnering, like basically saying that when a plant is invasive, they point out its non-nativeness. And in that way, it's like saying, oh, this, there's, you know, we don't like this plant or there's a problem with this plant. Oh, and it's non-native. It's like, why have, do you have to marry those two up all the time? Um, she says it much better than I do. Um, but yeah, the, the point is that we have lots of plants that are non-native that we, you know, kind of coddle and grow as ornamentals. And, you know, we really value and we really want in our garden. We don't point out how those are non-native. You know, it's kind of how you use these terms and um, the kind of mindset that these lang that this kind of language and those kind of terms inculcate in people. Gardening, botany, horticulture, all of it is an art form. And art forms, like James said in his article, are political mm. a lot of the time. So why should the why should the, the green world be any different? And like it, it sort of seems like there is a blind spot for people within gardening that they don't think critically about it in the same way that, you know, James, obviously he says this um, in the same way that we think critically about films and about architecture, especially, you know, when you go outside and you look at a building that is inherently political, even though, you know, it's not seen as political because what you choose to use as a material in architecture can often be because, you know, it fits well with the, with the surroundings or it's good for the environment, et cetera. And so that's political. And I think it's the same in gardening, right? It's like what you choose to plant is inherently political not only what you choose to plant but who you choose to plant it and what you choose to use and the tools that you choose to use are inherently political um but and james says this really well he says that the status quo is always apolitical and that a lot of people who are gardening are the, the status quo so like you know what quite often white men and so i think that's one of the reasons why people do see gardening as apolitical but perhaps it's time to change that I'm kind Perhaps of of because... the opinion. I'm kind of of the opinion that everything is political, and that even if you don't speak up, you are being political on the side of the status quo. So for me, there's just you know I don't. I think you could pick literally anything, and there is something political behind it. Um, it's just whether you choose to acknowledge it or not. Um, but yeah, I I completely believe now that saying nothing or being silent or preserving the status quo is political in its own right. It's such a privilege to be able to shut off to the politics of things, isn't it? Right, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. But but it is so it is quite difficult, I think. So I have been thinking about how political I am in my with with my online presence. And I the thing that I struggle with is the effort and the emotion that it takes out of me when I do it. And I don't know if I have that. Cause I, so um, I guess in December we had the whole Chef Philly thing um, and that was incredibly, incredibly draining. And actually that really made me think twice about speaking up because it was just so like every day my cortisol was just like constantly going and I was always on adrenaline etc etc so it, it's difficult actually um so but I really applaud Sue because what you do is is incredible I don't know if I have the energy um or the emotional balance to um I think that's completely fair enough though I mean you know when I say that everything is political I absolutely do not think that everybody should speak up on Instagram or wherever it is they do speak up but it's just that awareness that that awareness of what is and isn't political and to like you know claim that some people are being political and to claim that others aren't it's that I think it's the it's for me it's more the critical thinking and the mm. awareness behind it all absolutely not everybody you know wants to or can um keep pushing certain things on every channel that's just not how it works and you know people will do things in their day-to-day -day lives you know with their peers and their friends and their families um colleagues and you know in the way they spend their money and the things that they choose to do uh, so many things you know I think there are so many ways to kind of I don't know 
fight for equality and justice and be aware of the issues. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, it can be incredibly draining. Um, and I kind of feel like it is absolutely a privilege for me that I am able to do, to speak up consistently. And also it's been like quite a big journey for me. So I kind of, at the very beginning, I completely felt like you. And it's a scary thing to do, right? But I kind of don't feel scared about it anymore. And that's just the place I've arrived at. And also a capacity that I have to do that right now. So yeah, I, it's absolutely definitely, you know, privilege for me to be able to do that. And I don't think any less of anyone who doesn't. I think less of people who, well, maybe that's not true. That's not fair because who knows what's going on with them. But I think what gets me is if people don't say anything at all, but also don't show any inclination to listen or to understand or to think critically about issues. Um, but instead they just want to silence or to mm. kind of preserve their own comfort. Um, and that I kind of don't appreciate so much. I was just thinking about um, when people are trying to preserve their own sort of, well, silence, uh, sorry, silencing other people to kind of preserve the way that they feel about themselves, right? So um, I've often asked people about like, oh, so why don't you want to think of gardening as a political space in this kind of way? And they're like, oh, cause it's exhausting. And, you're, and they're like, I just want to have one space where it's not exhausting to be existing. And I'm like, yeah, but when you're a person of colour, it's exhausting all the time. Like, like when, no matter where I go, no matter where anyone goes as a person of colour in a predominantly white society, it's tiring because you're constantly thinking about what, if I say this, how is it going to be received? If I do this, how am I going to be perceived? And so, you know what? Having to think about gardening as a, as a political space, just suck it up. Well, also, yeah, I mean, human beings are so complex, aren't they? Like, I'm sorry, we are multidimensional enough to be able to enjoy something, but also recognize yeah. that, you know, that there are limitations for other people depending on their backgrounds or the environments they come from or the, you know, the specific sets of sort of systemic social injustices they face. Like, we're not completely one-dimensional. We can have the nuance and the space for multiple thoughts at the same time. So when people kind of shut down conversations, they're like, I just need one thing that's sacred. It's like, come on, are you really that kind of tunnel visioned? I don't know. But I think this is a good juncture to, to talk about green spaces as a, a tool for, well, I'm saying activism in the labelly way that we talked about earlier, but this idea of rest as a form of resistance and that actually you know green spaces have a really important role to play in people's mental well-being not just in terms of social justice but also thinking about the covid pandemic for example you know it's been a really really trying time for a lot of people um, in terms of their mental health um, and their their employment situations or whatever it is that might be impacting their their mental health and green spaces have a really important role to play. Um, and I know lots of people who they, they do feel that benefit when they get out into green spaces and they spend time outside and they spend time in nature. Um, but again, there's a hesitation that they're being kind of gatekept from, um, you know, the official spaces or whatever, you know, lots of people say, oh, well, you know, I have, have a garden but I don't, I don't really know anything about gardening and what 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 is it that's stopping people from really feeling like they can just enjoy and claim those spaces for themselves I mean what do you have advice for people who really enjoy being in green spaces but they don't really know how to how to start I think especially in in, in inner cities can be quite difficult um what we yeah, what do you think about that um gosh that's a big question <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry <laughs> yeah I think the pandemic really kind of showed how unequal unequal access to green space is didn't it kind of people who had their own gardens were very fortunate and could kind of escape into those and then you have so many people who don't have a garden at all or um, don't feel like they could um, safely access public green spaces. Um, so yeah, gosh, what can people do to feel? I feel like it's down to everybody to help each other feel welcome in those spaces. It's very hard mm. to give advice to someone who feels 
those spaces aren't accessible to them to say to them this is how you make them accessible because it's sort of not it's not something in them that's stopping themselves do you see what I mean it's like that situation or the environment that we all create together um so yeah I don't I don't know if I have advice for people as such I think so one of the from personal experience one of the things that really got me back into gardening um was doing stuff and growing things that were close to my heritage because I could see something in my garden that I could connect with and that could help me remember so um in braiding sweetgrass she talks um Robin talks a lot about remembering um and one of the ways that she remembers is is by uh there's a, there's a couple of things but one of them is, is braiding sweetgrass which is like a, a a grass in the um that they that her tribe grew um and so a similar thing for me was that I was growing things in my garden that my grandparents grew on their farm in Hong Kong and um doing that helped me feel a connection to the land that I was on and also a connection to the history that I had now obviously not everyone has access I'm you know very privileged to have quite a lot of space in London but if there were green spaces where people who manage those green spaces were growing plants that other people would recognize as part of their heritage I think that would that would go a real good way in in people feeling like they had a connection to that space I guess that's really interesting because I know that for my family they all love growing food I mean my my parents are actually visiting um at the moment first time I've seen them since September um and my mum walks in and she's bought me a goji berry plant <laughs> that's like her gift to me wow. <laughs> and that she's been growing from a cutting that a friend gave yeah. her so yeah I think um definitely from my family's perspective they love growing food it's all about the food right <laughs> it is all about the food and so I completely agree with you with what you said about how it's not down to marginalized people to make spaces accessible it's down to everybody else to make them feel welcome but one thing I I would say from my personal experience not not necessarily with um with gardening but or green spaces but just in terms of feeling alienated the very first step for me was finding other people who had similar mm. experiences or who who felt the same because I really believe that even if it's just personal change or if it's social change whatever kind of change it comes from finding spaces to unpack and talk about uh, experiences um, even just connecting with other people who have the same frustrations as you can be hugely hugely beneficial and that's certainly been my experience with BC and like we didn't know each other at all we all had this similar experience last year in the middle of pandemic and when you know this felt like the world was burning and I honestly I remember feeling so alone and then all it took was meeting a bunch of strangers on social media and then just chatting and creating this space to kind of unpack what we'd all been through and then a movement was born um so yeah I think it starts with personal healing yeah just the fact that we are here talking about this stuff is kind of mind-blowing right like yeah. Can you imagine doing this two, three years ago? Uh, you know, many people would be like, oh, I'm not sure we should, I'm not sure I want to talk about that stuff in public. I'm not sure, yeah. you know, and now it's just, it's just feels like such a release and a relief, doesn't it? To be able to talk yeah. to people who, un- who understand and who kind of know where you're coming from and aren't going to be judging you and going, oh, I don't, I don't think you should have said that or I don't think you should be going there. It's like we're all kind of in the same boat and we're exploring it together and we all kind of have had similar experiences. Um, yeah, there's like a mutual understanding yeah. there. It's quite, it's kind of, yeah, very nurturing and amazing. So true. So to wrap up, I want to ask you both about what you're currently up to, um, what your current projects are. Holly, I know that you've got, <laughs> sounds like a slightly stressful <laughs> garden project coming on. Um, yeah. You could tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days. Yeah, so I'm just saying we moved into a new place in December um, in London. And, you know, very lucky. It's a very large garden for London, at least. Um, It's 30 metres long, 7 metres wide. So it's a a great space. It's a south-facing growing space. Um, And we've been lucky enough to get some chickens. And they're great. We've got four chickens. My grandparents had them when um, we were young in Hong Kong. You can't grow chickens in Hong Kong for raised chickens anymore in Hong Kong because of bird flu um so I've been doing it here and sending them videos and they're, they're loving it they honestly when they they're, they're in their 80s now and one of the things that they love is seeing um my chickens run around the garden they're like oh when is it going to be ready and um my grandma has dementia 
And so seeing her react emotionally to something is quite, you know, it's, it's actually really, it's, it's heartbreaking, but also heartwarming at the same time, because, you know, she's, um, it's reminding her of her of where she came from. And that's sort of one of the reasons why I'm raising chickens, right? Is one of, is to sort of pay, pay homage to them. Um, but actually, I also really love them. It turns out they're one of the best pets you could ever get. And in about two months, yeah. I'm going to get some eggs. So. <laughs> I've heard this too. Oh, I'm so jealous. I've been enjoying Chicken Chronicles. They're so amazing. And they've got the best names as well. Can you, can you tell us what the names are? Oh, yeah. So um, we've got one called Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I stole that name off uh, someone called Real Hens of OC on Instagram. Uh, second one is Jean Grey. <laughs> She's grey. Um, and then Gaima, which is uh, chicken in Hakka, which Carly actually suggested, who's also a member of Vicin. What's the last one's name? Oh my goodness, have I missed one? Oh yeah, Megan. one of them is Megan. 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 Like Megan Markle. Exactly. So <laughs> <laughs> we were going to get to um, light Sussexes and we were going to call them Megan and Harry, but we ended up not getting any light, light Sussexes. So we ended up just with Megan. But Megan still might be a Meg Harry. She might actually be a cockerel. So. Uh oh, oh really? your neighbours will thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to rehome her if she's a cockerel, unfortunately. But they do make noise, don't they? Even if they're not cockerels. Yeah, they, so unfortunately, yes. When they lay eggs, they have this like egg laying song and it's actually quite loud. And even though they're at the bottom of the garden, so it goes a little bit like this, like. <laughs> Ollie, you were so good at that. I was just going to say that is the best, that I mean, not so even like realistic. chicken egg laying song aside, that is the best chicken impression I've ever heard oh, in my entire no. life. Have, have you only learned how to do that since you got chickens or have you always been able to do that? Um, no, so I, because I watched a YouTube video this morning when, when my boyfriend was asking me if he felt like that they, he was like, I've heard about this thing called a, a, a chicken song, a laying egg song. And I was like, okay, we'll look it up on YouTube. And then I found it this morning. Oh, that's wow. too funny. That's amazing. So you tell us what you're up to at the moment. Yeah, I've been gardening in our garden as well. And we don't have any chickens. I'm actually slightly scared of birds. I don't know what it is. I think it's wings and things. And um, But yeah, my mum grew up in Hong Kong with chickens around as well. I mean, you know, they used to farm. Um, mm. And yeah, they had chickens scratching around too. So I think my mum and dad would love it if I'd got chickens. Um, I kind of feel like they should move closer and they can help me look after some chickens. Um, but yeah, uh, otherwise, gardening wise, I'm on Decolonise the Garden, obviously on Instagram. Um, and I'm going to be talking at the Charleston Trust uh, Festival of the Garden this summer. Um, but yeah, otherwise, just kind of enjoying myself gardening, really. Kind of trying not to put too much pressure on myself about mm. it, because gardening is a lot of pressure, as much as people like to say how it's um, therapeutic and um, meditative and calming, which it kind of is. There's also an element of it that's quite you know, that can be a little bit stressy. And it's interesting what Holly alluded to earlier about kind of Instagram gardening. There is definitely an element of the whole, you know, perfectness and the perfect garden and all these things that you should have been doing yesterday. Um, so yeah, just resisting all that and enjoying my garden. <laughs> yeah, social media can be such a toxic space in that respect content I look at everything like whether it's whatever your Instagram thing is whether it's parenting or gardening or food or whatever that can be some really kind of clicky bitchy um not not even and or just kind of unreal unrealistic yeah elements to it and I think it's really important to not make the things that you enjoy into chores as much as you yeah. can absolutely that is 100% how I mean it's hard when you kind of do it as a job obviously sometimes yeah. you can inevitably get chory but in terms of yeah my own gardening that is how I have always 100% approached it it's like I want to enjoy this and I don't want to beat myself up about it and yeah so there are going to be weeds which I try not to call weeds but that's a whole nother conversation um so yeah there are going to be that kind of thing and there's uh, going to be things that die and there's going to be things that go wrong but that's just all part of it so you just have to sort of embrace it all actually that is one thing that I should say is that the gardening has taught me so much about acceptance and releasing and mm. you know I don't know if you guys have felt the same but growing up I've always felt like this need to be perfect all the time and to do things 
amazingly and mm. you know this I definitely had a perfectionism problem and in the past I if you had done the whole question uh give me something or what those interview questions where someone say oh say something that is negative about yourself or tell us something that and I kind of like jokingly would say perfectionism that's the one people use right mm. because it's like oh it's kind of bad but really it's good um but yeah now it's just like breaking that down and the garden totally helps you do that because there's no such thing as perfect in the garden yeah so true I feel that and, so much and also with the garden it's there's always next year there's always another season so it's like you can always try again and so I found that my life cycle has not gone from ah oh, day to day it's gone from ah oh, the next six months or the next year or the next three yeah. years right and it's that's so actually hopeful. Right, exactly. It's a much nicer way of looking at life and going, I haven't done this yet. Yes. It's like, oh, yeah. okay, in the next three years, I'll have a fruit orchard or whatever. Yeah, not. yeah yes. exactly. And <laughs> also, um, often in gardening, it, they are the accidents and the things that you didn't plan can be utterly beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, the things that you haven't accounted for um, and often things that you just happen to see or notice or experience just from being out there in the garden and being outside and being outdoors you know amongst the living world that's where the magic happens and for me gardening is so much less about sort of dominating and controlling and yeah the whole perfectionism thing and more about just being in in it being in the living world and being a kind of um attack you know having some kind of uh, relationship with it um yeah that's where I kind of I feel like I've just I feel like I just had an epiphany because so you just described me I have this like you know, on paper, I reckon very A type, sorry, type A personality. I hyper organize my life in all areas, it's something that I am actively trying to work to deconstruct. Sometimes I can be like my own worst enemy to the detriment of my mental health sometimes. But yeah, everything in my life is really ordered and planned and organized. And actually, I'm a really disorganized gardener. And I love it. Like I don't label stuff. I don't really research things I just kind of chuck them in the ground and see what happens and there's so many but I want to say I think there's like 50% failure in my garden at the moment um I mean yeah it, there's there's been some just the tiniest carrots like bushes that I thought were going to turn out to be beautiful fruit producing things actually ended up being poisonous berries you know just so many <laughs> failures and just ridiculous uh things I'm so scatty and disorganized and my, my husband is similar as well but I think that's because that's a space where I am allowed to be like that. And I give myself permission to fail in those spaces. And it, yeah. that point that I can't remember if it was you or Holly who made it, but the point about this cycle, there's always next time where I can just try again is such mm. a good way of thinking about life. Basically gardens are life. Yeah. They they're are. amazing. Although that's I have to say yeah. I've, I've set myself a challenge for September where I'm just going to be eating from the garden and nothing else. Um, wow <laughs> that's really stressing me out I'll be around your house oh, in no. September then <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just eggs and potatoes all month oh. Oh, I love that right. um I love that Mayanne, Mayanne that you kind of said about how you give yourself permission because you could so easily bring all of those elements to the garden and end up being uh, wanting to be really controlled and to feel really stressed about it but yeah like you say you you give yourself permission to do that and I love that the garden has done that for you or you have allowed oh. the garden to do that for you I'm gonna go and I'm gonna go into my garden after this uh, recording <laughs> is over and just you know feel all, I feel warm up. and fuzzy inside yeah I think that's a lovely <laughs> lovely note to end the podcast on so thank you so so much for for coming to join me you can follow Holly on Instagram at London Veg Patch and Sue at The Temperate Gardener or at Decolonize the Garden. You've been listening to But Where Are You From? A podcast made with love, sweat and tears. So if you enjoy what we do, please give us a five-star review or donate to our coffee page or both. And finally, while you're here, we'd love it if you could support us in our quest to launch the UK's first ever East and Southeast Asian Heritage Month in September 2021. We've got a petition going, which we plan to deliver to the UK Minister for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. So please, please, please sign it and share it around all of your auntie gossip networks. You can find it on our website, bseen.co.uk. Thank you both so much for joining me. It's been such a pleasure. 
thank you for having me yeah it's been so lovely thank you so much see you next time bye bye